1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
0: Jonathan Levin is a co-founder and the chief strategy officer at Chainalysis, a leading provider of anti-money laundering solutions to cryptocurrency companies, financial institutions, and government agencies. Jonathan, a thought leader on the future of cryptocurrencies, joins us today to talk about the spike in ransomware attacks and the role cryptocurrencies play in it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Welcome to Intelligence Matters.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Jonathan, um, you and I have something in common. We were both trained as economists with an initial thought of spending a lifetime in academia, but we both we both ended up doing something else. We both ended up, I think, doing something more interesting. Can you just describe your story uh, in that regard?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I I started out as an economist by training, really focusing in on uh, environmental economics, and quickly realized that you know the thing that was going to change the world. You know, obviously, the, the climate crisis was something that was impacting the world. Um, but the thing that I found to be less well understood was the impact that technology was going to have on the world. And actually, economists in general are not always the best forecasters and also just not very good at predicting what the impact long run of some of these technologies will be on the world. And so you know, when I came across cryptocurrencies, in my spare time while i was uh, while i was in oxford uh, i realized that actually this was a technology that was going to ask a lot of the best fundamental questions about you know how the internet is going to be structured and how corporations will get built in the future and who in the world is going to have the authority and power to to issue money and form communities and so i i took that as sort of this quest where people always told me you should focus on Asking the right questions, and it and it felt to me like this technology was going to beg all the right questions and and be there for the long run. And so, you know, switched from environmental economics to to starting a company to try and answer the question about you know how and why are cryptocurrencies actually being used in the world.
0: So you start this company called Chainalysis. What does it do?
2: So we are a data company. We build uh, a data set that matches cryptocurrency transactions to the real world purposes behind them. And then we package that information up and provide investigation software to government agencies, law enforcement, and corporations. And we help all of the businesses that are active in cryptocurrencies to uh, meet their regulatory obligations around uh, anti-money laundering um, and counter-terrorist financing.
0: So, Jonathan, because of your work and because crypto plays uh, such an important role in ransomware attacks, I know you pay a a lot of attention to those attacks, and I want to spend some time talking about that with you. Let me start by saying that I ran across some data in the last few days, and according to a company called SonicWall, um, a cybersecurity company Last year, 2020, there was nearly 5 trillion, yeah, 5 trillion cyber intrusion attempts, 5.5 billion malware attacks, and 300 million ransomware attacks. That's about 820,000 ransomware attacks a day, which is obviously um, a huge number, which is up significantly in the last couple of years, and I know it's growing again this year. So let me ask you two questions about about ransomware attacks, if I can. One is, can you explain for our listeners exactly how such an attack works? And two, can you give us a sense why you think there's been such a huge growth in those attacks?
2: Yeah, for sure. So what happens when an intruder gets into a network i think it's important to understand all of ransomware as a as a business and in fact a lot of cybercrime that's not ransomware you can think of really as a business and so ransomware is just one of the ways that cyber criminals are actually monetizing the access that they get into people's networks into corporations etc And the way that they get into these networks is oftentimes through some form of phishing attack where uh, someone pretends to be uh, another employee of a company or um, someone who's selling something to a company and someone clicks on a link and downloads a bit of malware onto their device. And now... And now the attackers are are into the network, and and historically there's been different ways to monetize that access to networks. And so, um, you know, one thing that people steal is you know other passwords, you know, personally identifiable information that can be used to commit credit card fraud and bank fraud. Um, but there's now you know with ransomware. And it started in the early '90s, you know, far far before cryptocurrency. That there's been extortion attempts on, you know, preventing access to networks that actually, you know, has been a way to monetize, you know, this this intrusion. And what we've seen in recent years is it's become, you know, a lot more popular um, to use you know, ransomware as the main vehicle for actually uh, monetizing this this intrusion and so i think when you when you think about um ransomware attacks you have to think about you know the business decisions that people are making on the other side of this and it's an industry where there's you know different options of monetization and so you know when credit card fraud companies become they're much more sophisticated at, at preventing that type of fraud there, there needs to be you know new angles for um, these cyber criminals to to increase their revenue and what we've seen is uh, that actually ransomware has taken off in terms of the amount of money that can be generated by the attacks that you mentioned and you know I think that you know it's, it's fair to say that you know there's been a widespread sort of understanding and and payment of these ransoms, which has led to sort of more attacks, and um, you know that has you know gone up considerably, and there's considerably more interest as as cryptocurrencies have become more prevalent. And so, you know, that's something that that has you know maybe you know contributed to it, but it's it's definitely been sort of the primary driver of this is just you know the need to increase revenue for these cybercrime gangs. Um, that have been that have been operating in this space already you know since you know, since the beginning of the internet but, but specifically you know, the financially motivated cyber criminals that are looking to generate income today.
0: So Jonathan is the, is the typical attack the encryption of the data on the network and then the asking for a ransom to provide a key, uh, for that encryption, is that the t- typical approach?
2: Yeah. So again, I would I would break it down into access to the network is coming through you know some form of, of phishing attack or network intrusion attack, um, or some vulnerability in the network, and then you know they download this 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 software that encrypts you know a lot of files, um, and there can be a decryption key that the attacker is then saying that will will give you the. The decryption key to unlock all your files, if you pay you know, a specific set of the ransom, and then you know, typically there's there's now, especially at the top end, you know, lots of negotiation that happens between attacker and victim.
0: And is there do the attackers focus on particular sectors, or are the attacks sort of evenly distributed across sector, and it doesn't sectors don't really matter to the attackers?
2: So actually, the, the sectors really do matter to the attackers. And and actually, you know, as of today, we've seen sort of an ability to actually trace some of these actors based on some of the policies that they're setting and some of the targets that they're going after. And so different ransomware gangs will have different policies. And we've actually seen this change dramatically over the last, I would say, several months where... Um, you know, initially some ransomware gangs and some ransomware strains, for example, would go in and detect uh, whether the language of the machine was in Russian, uh, and then would you know if it did detect that, then it wouldn't actually encrypt the files. Uh, and then we've seen sort of ransomware gangs chatting in some of the forums like XSS and exploit um, and they have actually said that we don't attack you know, healthcare or we don't attack you know, specific parts of critical infrastructure um, in order to sort of comply with the uh, rules that are actually being set by some of these underground forums. So definitely different actors are going after different types of businesses. I would say that you know, the thing that's kind of common across these more sophisticated ransomware gangs is that they are really looking at the you know revenues of different corporations and building target lists um the same way as you do for a normal business that's you know building a business to business software company yeah.
0: and then the um the perpetrators of the attacks we hear a lot about russian organized crime and they are indeed a major player but but who else is in this game in a big way besides russian organized crime
2: yeah, so I think there's there's several parts of this. I think that there's a, a global affiliate program of these uh, ransomware strains and, and, and authors, where you know actually there's an ability for people now to um, yeah you know, if they have more local access to specific companies or networks in different regions. They can actually monetize that type of access by sort of they don't need to write the ransomware themselves they can actually get it from one of these ransomware authors which you know a lot of it comes from russian organized crime but but effectively they can they can spread their influence even more by having these affiliates go out and and give them access to specific corporate networks in in different parts of the world and so I think one of the main takeaways that we've seen, and, and particularly if you look at, um, there was a, a case that involved Netwalker, which was a particular ransomware strain, and there was a, a big affiliate based up in based up in Canada that actually um, was allowing Netwalker to to really, you know, blossom uh, in in North America, and you know, that was taken down by the FBI with some with some assistance from, from chain analysis and the ability to go after those affiliates and make examples of that is going to be crucial to making sure that uh, you know that global industry that surrounds the enablement and growth of this um is quickly shut down and, and disrupted.
0: Jonathan, let's dig a little deeper into how people pay ransoms um when they've been attacked. Nearly every time you read about an attack in the media, you read that the attacker is asking for payment in cryptocurrency. And I'm wondering, is that true? Is that the preferred payment method? Is that the only payment method? How do you think about that?
2: Yeah. So and and this goes back to the to the early, early nineties where, where ransomware began. You know, people people at that time asked for bank wires to be sent and so that floppy disks could be shipped. You know, that was kind of the beginning of, of ransomware. And, and extortion um, You know happens where they, people are going to go with the most low friction option to actually make these payments. And so what, what typically is happening today is, you know, uh, ransomware is... Largely being demanded in cryptocurrencies, the vast majority, largely in Bitcoin, um, although sometimes we're, we're starting to see uh, some demands also in Monero. And effectively, um, companies are engaging in a negotiation, usually with an incident response firm um, that is helping them navigate the attack. And they then engage in a, in a negotiation with the um, with the authors and the payment is often made you know either by an incident response firm or some some form of third party um that can that can gain access to to that much bitcoin because you know clearly domestically there's there's still a lot of barriers from uh from a compliance point of view for corporations being able to just simply go ahead and buy that much cryptocurrency so uh, there are specialist firms that Allow corporations to gain access to large amounts of Bitcoin at short notice uh, to be able to p- make those payments.
0: And the difference is there a difference between Bitcoin and Monero when it comes to these kind of payments?
2: I think there's a question of access and ease. So um, there's there's clear regulation that came from FinCEN, which is the financial crime regulator, which talks about the need to check for for sanctions compliance when you're making these types of payments, uh, and the ability to do that in, in Bitcoin is, is there, you know, we, we provide that type of screening and monitoring of these payments to various providers that, that are making these payments. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's very important that there continues to be that level of vi- visibility into, into these payments. I would say that the visibility on the Monero side is, is much more limited.
0: So, Jonathan, before we continue with the ransomware story here um, and how it relates to crypto, I'd I'd like to take a little digression and ask you about cryptocurrency and illicit finance in general. This is something that you and I've talked a lot about. The conventional wisdom right, that you see is that the use of cryptocurrency is dominated by illicit finance. Uh, True, not true?
2: it's not true so the the dominant use of cryptocurrency is is for legitimate purposes in fact yeah you know, more than 99% of the flows that we see in cryptocurrencies are being used for you know regular commerce you know cross border payments yeah you know, there's still a high degree of, of speculation and and really market making inside cryptocurrencies that you know tend to dominate the um the actual flows that we see in cryptocurrencies. And, and just to your just to your point is you know, even if you take this ransomware problem, you know, the ability to have you know full visibility into the payments that are being made actually has helped in a lot of these instances. And you can point to you know Samsung ransomware, which was a an Iranian strain of of ransomware that uh, came out several years ago, you know, being able to um, detect some of these payments and and look at the financial infrastructure that's being used as cash out points has been critical in causing disruption to what is you know inevitably always going to exist as a threat. And so, um, you know, I think that there is a growing appreciation that not only you know cryptocurrencies have generally a a really good purpose in providing new types of financial infrastructure and greater financial inclusion but also actually that you know the government agencies that are are dealing with the ransomware threat have to be able to track and trace it in order to be able to dismantle uh, this type of infrastructure
0: we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with jonathan levin Jonathan, we were talking about that conventional wisdom, right? That the use of crypto is dominated by illicit finance. Where do you, what do you think that comes from? What's the source of that conventional wisdom?
2: I think that the origins of some of these narratives come from like the very early days of cryptocurrencies, and some of these narratives just perpetuate based on sort of anecdotal um, coverage. Uh, in media outlets, um, but but really, I think you can trace back the genesis to you know cryptocurrencies were a challenge to you know the existing financial order, um, and you know it was very early days, like similar to the days in the early internet where you know people were very nervous about the internet being used for bad use, bad uses, and there weren't you know we didn't have. Your whole life didn't depend on apps that you have on your phone, and you didn't, you know, send the email at the time, and you didn't. Your whole life wasn't sort of enhanced by the internet in the early days of the internet. Similar thing happens with cryptocurrencies that you know these narratives start out in the very early days of the technology where you know, really those benefits will take, you know, 20 to 30 years to, you know, fully transform industries and fully become just sort of accepted as um, the way that the entire world works. And, you know, we're still, you know, we're 10 years into cryptocurrencies or, or, you know, a few, maybe a few more. And those use cases are starting to blossom now And people, you know, that narrative is changing, but it, but it will take, it will take some time before, you know, everyone realizes that, you know, their lives and and their children's lives have been sort of impacted in a positive way from cryptocurrencies. And that is, in my mind, just an inevitability, the same way that the internet was an inevitability about, you know, the cost of information transfer and the speed of information transfer just dropping, dropping to zero.
0: So you, you, Jonathan touched a little bit on, on the ability to, to, to trace these transactions. And I'd love to dive into that a little bit more before we do that. Maybe you could just explain to people what the blockchain is. um, How does it work? Why is it important to cryptocurrency? And then we can get into, to how the blockchain can be used to actually trace some of these transactions, but what is the blockchain? How does it work?
2: Yeah. Um, So, the blockchain is really the core technology that sits behind cryptocurrencies. And effectively, it is a a record of all the transactions that have happened in cryptocurrencies. And the reason why that's so important is because there is no central party behind Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies. There is only an agreement between everyone about which transactions have happened in the past. And that is, what is that is what the, what the technology is and what creates these currencies and means of payment is just that everyone in the world can look at the Bitcoin transaction record and agree that these are the full amount of transactions that have ever happened. And so the fact that these records are there it means that you know a company like chainalysis can look through that you know firstly verify that there's no other bitcoin transactions that have ever happened so we have the complete set of information and then what we can do is we can build a data set that that explains to people what is the purpose behind those transactions which are the services that exist in the world that actually put those transactions into The blockchain into the record and so what we've been doing for the last seven years is building that most comprehensive picture of which of the services have been putting those transactions into the blockchain and that allows us to then have a complete view of all of the purposes behind these transactions which then allows people to be able to track and trace and so we can say which transactions have been associated with ransomware payments and which transactions have been associated with you know regulated industry service providers you know like the exchanges that exist
0: so maybe Jonathan if you could take us a little bit deeper into so how do you identify these illicit actors right on the blockchain
2: yeah so the nice thing about you know the blockchain is that you know, we have this complete record of all transactions that have happened, and so there's part of this which is some you know machine learning and pattern recognition that we have developed, but there's part of this which is just simple you know intelligence gathering um, that we can actually look at. You know, reporting information from some of these actors on forums, or we might get some information from some of our customers about which ransomware payments they are making um, on behalf of their customers. And it allows us to have this picture of information about which of the ransomware payments are actually being made on the blockchain. So we depend quite a lot on the ability for people to share information. And I think that that is one one of the key areas that we actually still need to continue to press on and improve how people share information relating to cryptocurrency payments when it comes to ransomware in order to in order to fuel greater disruption
0: so 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 jonathan can you go beyond just identifying an illicit transaction and actually identifying the illicit actors themselves
2: yeah so i think that there's a couple of different ways to think about this and when it comes to the ability to tie even a single attack back to the actors themselves, Um, we actually are able to do this just because we have the complete picture of what is happening on the blockchain. And so even if we do not get informed that it was a particular ransomware strain that was responsible, oftentimes we've been able to just take a, a payment of interest and tie it back to some previous you know, activity that 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 actor has been involved in, and so we can actually. You know, the interesting thing here is that by creating greater information sharing procedures and protocols, we're actually going to be able to assemble a much better picture of which attacks are responsible by which actors, and then the question is: Well, can you move from that actor, you know, and understanding? into you know some real world identities and the way in which we've seen that happen is through collaborating with industry on being able to get some identifying information either from you know the merchant services side of this industry and when i say merchant services i mean that a lot of the profits from ransomware are being reinvested in you know cyber infrastructure for Um, you know further attacks. And actually some of these payment companies are are global, some of them are based here in the United States or, or in friendly jurisdictions. And there's really an ability through you know good, you know, classic sort of law enforcement work to actually find some of these further indicators and build a better picture of who these actors are. And so you know one of the things that we have in this country as well as in friendly jurisdictions is, you know, cryptocurrency exchanges are regulated and have to comply with AML requirements and so if it is going to one of those exchanges in a friendly jurisdiction you know there's really good ability to actually get information about what are the identities that are behind those transactions by by serving those entities with legal process
0: and for my listeners who don't know AML is anti-money laundering We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell.
2: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery.
0: So Jonathan, a couple, of, a couple of recent cases, we've actually seen the ransom that was paid recovered. So how does that happen? And does blockchain analysis play a role there?
2: Yeah so I think in 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 all of the cases that involve ransomware you know blockchain is going to be crucial to understand the financial network of payments in order to be able to understand you know the actors that are involved authoring it the actors that are spreading it and the full you know global network that now exists and the fortunate thing is is that you know, with the power of the blockchain, you have the potential to create that full network and really understand where it's most vulnerable and structure, you know, a disruption strategy around it. And, you know, in the case, you know, that we saw of, of the recovery of the payment uh, associated with Colonial Pipeline, the ability to do that um, really is just about understanding the full network and finding pieces of vulnerability. And so, you know, that's what I think is is critical is that whenever there are these payments, that there is a full analysis of not only the payment itself, but all other related payments and payments that those actors are making to other people to further their aims and ambitions. And through doing all of that, you start to assess you know, where can there be vulnerabilities and, you know, in that case, you know, really great result to actually be able to recover some of the some of the ransom and send a strong message that actually, you know, this country does have the capabilities around you know, how to follow payments after a ransomware attack and actually be able to, to disrupt the financial reward that's on the back end. And I think that you know, this is a big focus of you know, where we should be on the policy side is, is thinking about what are those options of disruption and how can we best maximize uh the potential for them moving forward
0: and do you see do you see the attackers learning from the capabilities that we've been discussing um and have they reacted to that learning
2: so I, I'm, I'm sure, Mike, I'm they're the avid listeners of your podcast. And so, <laughs> um, you know, I don't, I don't doubt that that people are learning a lot through um, the, you know, through the greater advances in technology. And, you know, it's clear that this is always going to be uh, a game where, you know, the the, cap- the capacity and the capabilities of government agencies uh, to to meet their mission is going to is going to continue to increase with you know a lot more investment, but but then the attackers will will change and morph. I think that there is something fundamental though about being able to have this complete picture of the blockchain. That in my experience, even though the level of sophistication of some of the actors has has changed and they've you know created some obfuscation strategies and other types of things, you know. We at Chainalysis have continued to invest in being able to, um, you know, detect some of this activity and, and help um, assist law enforcement in in creating you know, some of these cases that that we've seen. Um, so you know, I I do see it as sort of a continuous sort of proverbial cat and mouse game. But I think that it's it's something that that is just inevitable.
0: So Jonathan, just maybe a couple of last questions here, and you touched on this a little bit, but but maybe. A little bit bigger picture. How do we get our arms around the ransomware problem? What should we be doing?
2: So, I think, uh, you know, from our perspective at Chainalysis um, and, and, you know, my personal perspective, I think that the narrative that has been prevailing that you need to treat this with a counterterrorism mindset and, you know, consistently put more resources on, um, coordinating a whole government approach and a, a real assessment of which of the authorities and agencies will be able to disrupt different parts of the ransomware supply chain. And cryptocurrencies play a really crucial part in enabling the government to actually understand that financial network and map it out. So to find the most vulnerable parts of that supply chain and engage in strategies to actually disrupt that and create a deterrent from sort of some of the more sort of financially motivated bystanders that are, that are helping facilitate that. I think there's a, a huge international component to this where you know, a lot of the internet infrastructure that is being leveraged in these attacks is actually sitting in friendly countries and there are payments being made where there are some there are some real wins in being able to understand and map this out again you know i think this is a, an international coordination problem and we need to we need to be better at at forming these international task forces and bodies and then finally i think there's you know capacity building and rapid information sharing programs that do already exist in, in various forms in in both cybersecurity and financial intelligence. I think it's about you know, determining you know, which are the right channels. And, you know, we have some really concrete suggestions about which part, which actual pieces of information can be shared with protecting, you know, victims from from further attack and and vulnerability, um, but would further sort of, again, the potential for disruption, the potential to to actually maybe also issue some sort of financial notifications, blacklists, sanctions on, on some of these entities to, to raise the deterrent and, and damage the financial returns. And, you know, I think that we must think about sort of moving at the speed of the technology and you know, appealing to maybe you know not not only the traditional sort of government mechanisms but really be innovative about what rapid response looks like and you know, we've started to see that in uh business email compromise which is you know, a massive you know market in terms of financially motivated cybercrime still sort of bigger actually than um ransomware um, but we need to we need to do the same in ransomware and, and make sure that we able to respond internationally at the speed of the technology. And, you know, we at Chain House has been spending a lot of time thinking about that as well.
0: So, Jonathan, we have about uh, 45 seconds left here. Um, One more question, the long term future of cryptocurrency. Are you a bull or a bear?
2: I'm a bull. The way that I think about this is there are technologies that exist that have inevitable impacts on the world. The ability for people to program money and form communities over the Internet and build much better and more secure means of exchanging value will inevitably have a huge impact on the way that corporations around the world function, the way that governments around the world function. Um, And so ultimately, I see this as one of the one of the true inevitabilities in the 21st century.
0: Jonathan, thank you. Fascinating insights. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: That was Jonathan Levin. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.